right. Hey, everybody. It's good to see you. My name is Brian, one of the pastors here at the summit. So glad you guys could be with us. Um, it's interesting. We just saw Jesus fire off uh, three miracles, almost like he's shooting a gun or something. It's like pop, pop, pop. And um, I guess my warning to you right on the front end would be, it's kind of easy to miss the point of what's going on here. It's easy for you to read these series of stories and to be caught up uh, maybe in the spectacular, or maybe you're somebody who doesn't believe, and so you kind of get caught up in like the skeptical of all of this, like, well, how exactly did all of this go down? Um, but that's not the point. Like The point of the majority of miracle stories, like the three that we just read, is the function as a sign. It's like an earthly, tangible glimpse into a larger heavenly reality that's about to break into our lives. This is going to be really good news for us. I mean, that's the way any sort of sign functions, right? So if you drove through the mountains this past weekend, um, you know, maybe you're getting ready to go around a bend, and there's this yellow sign, and it has black squiggly lines on it. It's sort of communicating to you, hey, like around the bend, it's about to get dicey, and you need to be aware. That, that's what a sign functionally does. And so it's going to be really easy for you to miss the point of the signs. Now, um, probably for any of you who are thinking critically at this point, you're like, well, wait a second. Like, how in the world does anybody miss the point of a sign? Well, I'm glad you asked. I, I've actually seen this firsthand in my life. Um, I, I'm kind of proud of the sign that we have as a church, uh, particularly UPM crew. You can appreciate this more because you come and now it's, now it's dark when you come because of daylight savings time. Uh, we have not just a sign, but a neon sign. And I feel like um, that neon sign ups our coolness factor considerably. We're in a very cool, hip, artistic neighborhood. I am none of those things. And so we sort of compensate for that through our neon sign. And I remember um, maybe it was last Easter or so, uh, it was during the uh, morning gathering. Uh, the bay door was open on that side. People were kind of milling around and having fun and talking with one another. And uh, the bay door was open, and I see this sort of roaming pack of hipsters come up to the edge of the bay door and sort of like peering in to see what in the world is going on here in this building. So I see this. I walk over to the bay door. I uh, kind of c- approach their leader on his fixie bike, and uh, I'm like, okay, like, um, I'm Brian. How can I help you? And uh, no joke, this is really what happens. He, he looks at me, and then he looks at this giant, bright neon sign, and then he looks back at me, and he's like, like, what are you guys doing in here? Now, in my mind, I'm like, okay, don't be sarcastic, don't be sarcastic, don't be sarcastic, don't be sarcastic. I was like, well, we're a church. Like, you just, I mean, I didn't say this, but like, you just stared at a giant neon sign that says, The Summit Church. So I said, well, you know, we're a church. We just got done with having church. It's Easter. We're about to get together tonight if you want to come and join us. And he was like, oh, like, you guys are a church. Like, I thought that thing was ironic. Like, you know, there's like bars in the neighborhood called the library and the mill. And I thought it was kind of like an ironic thing. Like, this is way too cool for a church. I was like, thank you. Like, I, th- I guess. Thank you very much. And uh, he was like, okay, well, see you later. And before I knew it, like, he and his pack of hipsters were down Larimer to go to a bar and go somewhere much more interesting than the summit. So uh, we've seen this, right? We've seen there are times where we get very clear signs and we miss the point of those signs. And this is just sort of my loving challenge to you on the front end. Do not miss the point of the signs. Do not get caught up in the the spectacular of it all. Do not get caught up in skepticism of how did this happen. But instead, look at these signs as earthly glimpses into a heavenly reality of who Jesus is and the goodness he wants to break into our lives. That these stories, they function almost as like almost like road markers taking us along a path to a destination where we see the immensity of the character and the nature of Jesus. And how that, like the, the revelation of his nature is tangibly good news for you and for I. And so let's look at this. We're going to work through this. We're going to work through each of these stories at a time. And uh, we're going to see how these three stories function as three signs 
that really just are such, such good news. Now, the first we're going to look at is a sign of how Jesus gives us worth, a sign of how Jesus gives everybody dignity, value, and worth. And uh, I'll say of these three signs, this is the one that's the most difficult. We're going to spend the most time on this, but it's worth kind of giving the intellectual time to this because the the truth is unbelievably beautiful. Uh, Verse 24, this is chapter 7, says, and from there, uh, from there is referencing what we looked at last week, that Jesus is debating uh, and discussing scribal tradition with his disciples in a house. He arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. This is modern-day Lebanon, and I actually brought a map. Can we bring the map up? I didn't only bring a map, I brought a laser pointer. Everybody ooh and ah. Uh, there we go. Okay, there it is, right there. So a lot of this has been going down. You see where I am right there? That's the Sea of Galilee. And Jesus has made his way, it seems way out of his way, up to Tyre. That's Tyre right there. I'm shaking. And then Sidon right there. Did it die? No. Okay, there it is. So you can get an idea of where this is geographically going down. He'll hop all around here, uh, and we'll show this as it progresses. It says, And he entered the house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. Verse 25, And immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth. Now here's what's really important for you to understand. We, I don't know if any of you grew up in a Middle Eastern context in the first century. Actually, I know none of you did. So verse 26 doesn't sort of astound you in the way that it should astound you. What's important for you to understand is that every culture you walk into, every room you walk into has a social hierarchy that exists. There are people at the top and there are people at the bottom. So think about this when you were in school or some of you are still in school. You could walk into the lunchroom and you could say like, oh, okay, those are the cool kids. Those are the not cool kids. Or think about this when you walk into a gym. Like, that's the big thing to do in Denver. You walk in and you're like, oh, like that person knows what they're doing, right? They're wearing the Lululemon workout outfit and they like are tackling those machines and they're grunting and it's like, what, well, like, what is going on? But you look like you know what you're doing. And then there's the person that wears like jeans into the gym. Like they got their jorts and they're like lifting a dumbbell and their form is terrible. And you're like, you are going to like render yourself unconscious when you drop that thing on your head. And so like immediately you've made an evaluation. Okay, there are people at the top and there are people at the bottom. This exists in cultures as well. And what's important for you to understand is in a first century Middle Eastern context, like the one we're studying here, this woman is the least important person in the room. One commentator says this about verse 26. He says, verse 26 reads like a crescendo of demerit. She is a woman, a Greek Gentile from infamous pagans of Syrian Phoenicia, even Levi the tax collector, who we saw when we started the, the book of Mark, is like the worst of the worst, we thought, but even him must have raised his eyebrows at this woman. And she begged. In the original language, it's a present progressive, which just means like she was begging. She was like actively going to Jesus, begging him to cast the demon out of her daughter. So picture this, kind of what's unfolded in this scene. There's two people in the room. There's this woman who is the least important person in the culture. And there's this man, Jesus, who's like the most important person in the universe because he's revealed himself to be God. Like, how will they interact with one another? Now, Jesus' response to her petition is really, really fascinating. It's very surprising. Jesus always keeps us on our toes. Um, It's a little bit, this is where it gets even more complex. So let me kind of tell you what Jesus is doing, and then I'll kind of show you how he's doing it. Essentially, what Jesus is doing is sort of playfully taking on the stereotype of a religious leader, particularly a Jewish religious leader of the day. He's sort of playfully, almost like a costume, he's putting this on, and he's sort of playing the role towards this woman to push her to the place where she has to make a decision. 
And really to answer a crucial question that's prevalent throughout Mark over and over and over again, like, who do you say that Jesus is? Who do you say that I am? And so that's what he's going to do when he says all the weird things you're about to see unfold. He first says this, let the children be fed first. So that's where you're seeing sort of him playing to the Jewish cultural expectation of the Messiah, that he wouldn't just come to the Jews first, which Jesus has done, but he would come exclusively to the Jews and not sort of spend any time with the unclean pagan foreign nations uh, of which this woman belongs. And then look what he says here. For it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. So Jesus calls this woman a dog. Now, here's where we have to sort of like contextualize a little bit. In the United States, we hear the word dog and we're like, aww. Like, I think about, like, my dogs. Like, I have two chocolate labs. They sleep under the covers with us from time to time. Uh, we let them, like, eat after us. Like, we share human food with them all the time. I know it's ridiculous, but you do it too, okay? So don't, don't get, like, all self-righteous. Like, we all do this, okay? Uh, so... So that's the way we think about dogs. But you have to understand, like, in every single other culture, dogs are not looked at as sort of cute, cuddly, share the bed with them. They're looked at as pack animals. They're looked at as being scavengers. They're looking at being, like, if you own them, they're means of security. They're not sharing the bed with you whatsoever. And it was a popular... I mean, really, it's the closest thing you could call it is a racial slur. It was a popular racial slur of the day to refer to a Jewish woman as a dog. Now, here's the thing. It's before any of you are like, wait a second, Jesus was a racist? Settle down. All right, here, we're going to see exactly what's going on. What's, here's what's really interesting. In the original language, in the Greek that Mark wrote with, what we see is that Jesus uses the diminutive expression, the diminutive form. Now, you probably don't remember this from your fifth grade grammar class or whatever it is, but the diminutive form, I'll, I'll just give you an example. Like, uh, we parked back here uh, when we came here like 30 minutes ago, and uh, we were walking, and there's two guys walking their dogs, and they were like these little, like, almost rat-like, tiny little dogs. I like the big dogs, but that doesn't have anything to do with what I'm saying. Like, these tiny little, kind of, like, rat-like dogs, and, like, the smallest dogs always feel like they have to, like, kind of establish their presence, and so they start going after one another, and they're they're yapping at one another. And my daughter, Hannah, she's almost two, she hears all this go down, and you know what she says? She doesn't say dog, but she says doggy. That's the diminutive. Dog to doggy. So if you translated this literally, it's almost like Jesus is not calling her like a racial slur. He's sort of undermining the racial tension of the day, and he's kind of referring to it as a puppy. It's like, what is this woman going to do with this? Here's what's really interesting. Look at the way that she responds. It's astounding. Verse 28. But she answered him, Yes, Lord, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Here's what's astounding about this, particularly when you juxtapose it from the story we looked at last week where you have these Pharisees, these religious leaders who know like all these things about Jesus and can't get over the hurdles of their self-righteousness to see Jesus for who he really is. That Jesus sort of playfully is like, you know, the cultural expectation says you're not a very good person. Why would I do anything with you? He's just sort of playing with her and she's like, you have no idea. Like, I am broken And I am exactly who everybody says that I am. I'm far worse than everybody says that I am, but not on the basis of my goodness, not on the basis of my morality, not on the basis of my performance, not on the basis of my culture, but on the basis of your goodness alone. Like your provision can spill even to the least of these just like me. Like Jesus sort of playfully taken on this role and pushed her into a corner to say, like, who do you say that I really am? Do you think I'm just sort of like the stereotypical Jewish leader of the day? And she's like, no, I think you're far better than that. They give nothing but moral teaching, but you are the one whose provision goes not only to the nation of Israel, but to the very ends of the earth. And what you're seeing 
as well the disciples and the Pharisees who are close to Jesus perpetually miss out on Jesus, this woman like, gives the purest confession of the most authentic Christian faith. Like, be good to me. Not because I deserve it, because you are intrinsically good and you are gracious and you are merciful. And in this moment, what unfolds is just like last week, like Jesus proclaims that all foods are clean. So this week, Jesus proclaims all nations are clean. And Martin Luther, he famously wrote about this scene. She took Jesus at his word and he treated her not as a dog, but as a child of Israel. And what emerges then from this scene is this earthly sign that points to a heavenly reality that Jesus possesses both the authority and the grace where he will not be limited to be some tribal deity. No, his grace, his mercy, his love, it extends to every race, it extends to every nation, it extends to every gender, it extends to you no matter what your past is, it extends to you no matter how bad you've, like, it extends to everybody because everybody has dignity, value, and worth in his eyes because they've all been created in his image. Now, for most of us in this room, we're kind of a, a younger group, we're socially aware and socially active, and you hear that, and you're like, well, duh. Like, of course. Like, everybody matters. Now, here's what I would say to you, is like, don't take it for granted that you think that. Like, globally, that's not the way the majority of people think. Even in the history of Denver, that's not the way the majority of, like, Denverites have thought. I know that for a lot of us, we think that, like, the evils of sexism or racism have only been in the backwoods of Alabama, uh, which if you're from there, I'm sorry, but that's just, you know, the easy example, so I'm sorry. Um, yeah, so back with, but it's like, no, like, it's been a problem in Denver as well. I mean, like, the Supreme Court in the early 70s had to specifically ask Denver public schools, like nobody else, Denver public schools to desegregate because they hadn't, and it was over a decade after the decision of Brown versus the Board of Education. So, like, let's not be so self-righteous about how great we are because we're not in the South. But here's what I would say to you, is like you really need to treasure the degree to which Jesus, like the sign he's demonstrating here, like the good news that it is. And let me just give you with this maybe a little bit of a comfort and then a challenge, okay? Now, the comfort I would give to you is here's the thing. And I think culturally, a lot of us in Denver will say that everybody matters. We'll say that all races matter, all genders matter, all ethnicities matter. And I would totally affirm that. But I think it's really hard for some of us in the room to believe like I matter, And for some of us, yes, like the problem is that we think far too highly of ourselves, but for others of us, like we think far too lowly of ourselves. When we imagine God moving and blessing and changing the lives of people, it's like that guy with that particular profession, or it's that girl who looks that particular way, or it's that race, or it's that class, or it's that gender. I mean, I just even feel when people find out what I do for a living, they're like, oh, you're a pastor. You must have like an extra special blessing of God's favor. I'm like, what are you talking about? Like, it doesn't work that way. Just because I read a bunch of philosophical and theological books, God's not like, oh, like I was waiting for somebody to read complex philosophy. Boom, blessed. But that's like that functional thinking. It's kind of that thinking of like, oh, I'm like not nearly as important as you. I'm like, what? Like we're collectively created in the image of God. We're all on level ground in his his image. And so I just challenge you with that. Well, that's my comfort part. So I'll comfort you with that. I'll comfort you with the fact that you matter, that everybody matters. And it doesn't matter your race. It doesn't matter your history. It doesn't matter your past. It doesn't matter your mistakes. It doesn't matter how ignorant you've been. It doesn't matter how long you've been sort of absorbed with your self-righteousness of how good you've been. Everybody matters. Everybody matters. And here's the challenge with this. So there's the comfort. Here's the challenge I would give with this as well. 
The challenge, let me get a little bit more philosophical here, is that this truth reveals one of the most obvious aspects of culture where we necessitate the Christian worldview. Now, here's what I mean by this. My observation in culture is people want to say kind of two different things. Like, one, they want to say, like, everybody matters, and racism is wrong, and sexism is wrong, and prejudice is wrong. And I'd be like, I'm totally on board with that, okay? I'm not going to challenge that whatsoever. Totally on board with that. But then they also want to say, like, and as it pertains to God, like, he's not really needed. Um, he's not really needed in culture. He's not really needed to explain, like, why the world is the way it is. He's not really needed for our concepts of morality. Like, we, we can kind of figure that out on our own. And here's what I would say to you is if that's kind of the way that you think is that like you have a really great house. Intellectually, you have a really great house. The idea that everybody matters, I totally affirm that. But you are building that on a marsh. Like you do not have a solid foundation to explain not just that everybody matters, but why does everybody matter? Like you can't just say everybody matters because you saw it on a Hallmark coffee cup and you're like, well, that makes me feel good, so I'm going to believe that. Like philosophy doesn't work that way. Like, you need a foundation to build that truth claim upon. And here's the really interesting thing, is if you think you don't need God, and if you think the most uh, uh, sufficient explanation for why the world is the way it is, is that you are nothing more than the product of chance. That you're nothing more than a random genetic mutation with no sort of intentionality, or that you were not fearfully and wonderfully made. If you believe the reason the world is the way that it is, is because the strong have eaten the weak, and that's the way it's been, and that's the way it always will be, like that runs right in the face of the belief that every single person matters. Like, we believe that everybody matters regardless of sex and class and history and whether or not they're disabled and whether or not they have special needs because everybody was fearfully and wonderfully made in the image of our God. And I just don't know how you can claim that that's true about people apart from sort of starting with that origin of where we came from. And so, anyways, I think that's important. Okay, Stu. The second sign we see, a sign of how Jesus fully identifies and redeems our suffering. A sign of how Jesus fully identifies and redeems our suffering. So if you're suffering, if you're struggling, welcome, okay? We're going to see how Jesus identifies with us. Look at verse 31. Then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. Can we bring the map back up? All right. Don't die laser pointer. Ah, okay. There's Sidon, Tyre. He makes his way down here past the Sea of Galilee, into the the capitalist, which is right. Oh, laser pointer fail. Oh, well, um, there's no way for me to explain this. Right there. Okay, that's the best I can do with this thing. Um, So he's gone down there. He's traveled south past the Sea of Galilee. And verse 32, and they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. And they begged him to lay his hand on him. Verse 33, and taking him aside from the crowd privately, you might be wondering, why did he do this? Well, Jesus, he was always about giving dignity to people. Like somebody with special needs in this culture would have perpetually been a spectacle. Jesus isn't about like sort of accentuating this pain for this man. He removes him into a private environment where he can bless him. Taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears and after spitting, touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephetha, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. 
Now, of all of this that we just saw, here's the most important part that I want to draw your attention to. It's in verse 34. It's when the text says, in looking up to heaven, it's talking about Jesus, right before he's about to heal this man, he sighed. What's really interesting is in the original language, it's like more than just a sigh. It's more than like, ah. It's like, almost like a groan. It's like a deep sigh. It's like, I don't know if you've ever had in your life a moment where you've been sort of so grieved by something, like you haven't been able to articulate any words and you've just sort of moaned. That's what Jesus does when he looks at this disabled man and like sees the pain that he's experienced all his life. Now like, why would Jesus do that? Particularly, we already know the end, right? He heals him. So why isn't Jesus like, oh boy, like man, you think it's bad, but like wait till you see how good it gets. Like man, I'm about to like blow you away. It's because like a, a, most, a much fuller, a much more beautiful identification is going on where Jesus, who we've seen as God, like Jesus, the one who is at the creation, is staring the brokenness of his creation in the face, and he is grieving over seeing it like face-to-face in such a way. Almost to like give you the full emotion of this moment, I came across this article this past week about uh, the sculptor Michelangelo. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with Michelangelo. Maybe you are from watching the Ninja Turtle cartoons. That's kind of the way I first got exposed to him, which shows you how cultured and artistic I am. Um, but, you know, there was not just an Ninja Turtle named Michelangelo, but there's also an artist named Michelangelo as well. We're talking about the artist, um, just to be clear here. And Michelangelo, like any sort of artist, many of you are artists in this neighborhood. This is one of the most artistic neighborhoods in the city and really even in the West. Um, you know what it's like to sort of pour your entire life into hopefully producing a masterpiece. And Michelangelo was notorious for this. He was, he was the type of guy that he, would, he like wouldn't sleep, he wouldn't eat. If he did sleep, he slept like in his work clothes and in his work boots so he could like wake up and immediately get back to work. And one of his masterpieces was something called the Pieta. I wanted to show it to you because this is absolutely, absolutely beautiful. Here it is. And it's a sculpture. Uh, it was carved out of marble, and it uh, depicts Jesus after the crucifixion. Uh, he's died, and he's in the lap of his mother, Mary. And, and this is a masterpiece. It's one of the most famous and well-known pieces of art. And, and Michelangelo, he notoriously poured his entire life into crafting something as beautiful as this. Now, here's what's really interesting. I came across this article. Uh, what happened uh, many centuries after Michelangelo created this is that this man by the name of Laszlo Toth went into the cathedral where this piece was being kept, and he walks in, and he pulls out from his jacket a, a rock hammer, and he just starts beating on this statue as hard as he can and screaming. And people are trying to like, pull him off, and he keeps beating on it whatsoever, and by the time they pull him off, he actually takes off the entirety of Mary's arm and totally defaces the statue. And what was so interesting to me was reading the account of this and seeing the grief and the sorrow the eyewitnesses felt in this moment where they saw something as beautiful as this defaced and marred. And I just like read this scene about Jesus, and I just, here's what kind of crossed my mind. was almost like, what would it have been like if like Michelangelo had walked in the room and seen this? Like something that he had poured his entire life to produce, marred by the brokenness of another. It's like that gives us a bit of an insight to why Jesus groans. That, that he is the one who is at the creation. He was the one who made all things good. And then he looks at the tangible implications of sin, this brokenness that this man has had to carry his entire life, and he just grieves at it. 
But here's what's beautiful about the scene. Like, he doesn't just grieve, but he actually does something about it. He, like, actually heals this man. And what's so astounding is the response that everybody else in the room has as eyewitnesses. It's like, they know exactly what's going on and the significance of what's unfolding. Look at verse 37 of what the people see or say when they see them heal, see Jesus heal uh, their friend. They were astonished beyond measure, saying, he has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. And for any of you who have any sort of familiarity with the Bible, like when they say, he is the one who has done all things well, uh, images of Genesis 1 should be echoing in your mind that he is the one who made everything and said it was all good. And what's revealed in this moment is that Jesus is God in the flesh who not only weeps alongside those of you who are weeping, he not only grieves alongside those of you who are suffering, but he also possesses the power as God to put things back together in the way that he originally intended them to be and for all things to be good. I mean, like the beauty, like the beauty of this scene when we look at this and think about this, like, I feel like it's really funny for me. Let me just be a little bit introspective, if that's okay. Um, and I feel like I'm getting old. I don't know if that's like, people are telling me that, and I don't know if it's because like I went past the 30 mark or whatever it is. I know many of you are older than that. So like, man, I'm on your side. I think we got many, many years left. Okay, so let's not be ridiculous. But I just feel like, here's the interesting thing, is I feel like when I was younger, especially in my teenage years, I sort of carried this immature notion about the way the world works and it was kind of this safe, comfortable, easy place that had like my best interests in mind and everything was destined to go good. And then like you hit your 20s and you even get into your 30s and you're like, man, like the world is a really broken place. And it's like people get sick and it's not just like, oh, like fall allergy sick. It's like diagnosed with cancer. People die that you're close to marriages you thought were going to be okay aren't okay. Um, uh, People are abused. They're exploited. You see it on the news. You see it personally. It's your neighbors. It's strangers. And you're just like, I just don't know how much longer I can do this. You know what's astounding about this is like, even though we sort of collectively feel that about the way the world is, you know what's like really astounding about this? It's like all of us like, have this restlessness inside of us where we're like, it's not supposed to be that way. Right? So like somebody gets sick. They get diagnosed with like a really serious disease. And for a lot of us, we're not just like, well, that's just the way it goes. We're like, I long for you, despite what it is the doctor said, for you to get better. Or goodness, even like somebody dies. And you know, like everybody dies, right? You know that? Like everybody dies. And nobody gets back up other than Jesus. And there's still this sort of ping inside of your heart to be like, I know you just died and I know you're not Jesus, but I would like love to see you again. I would love to have like one more conversation with you again. And what's so beautiful about this sign that's emerging, it's like an earthly tangible sign that points to a heavenly reality that the day is coming where we will see that those internal longings of our soul in the midst of our suffering are not mere nostalgia. It is not a mere fairy tale, but instead you are longing for a reality that Jesus Christ is going to create by his power. And for those of you who suffer, and for those of you who are struggling, and for those of you who are hopeless, you look into the eyes of this man who sees Jesus grieve at the weight that he has had to carry, and then he puts the world back in the way that it was meant to be. That is a glimpse of who our God is. And that is a glimpse of the way he looks at the suffering that you're enduring. And it's like, that wasn't it. Like, I would just end the, bo- like, 
I was just in the gospel of Mark here, right? Like, I just expect Jesus to drop the mic and like, okay, and that's the end. Like, what else do you need to know? But he goes on. Like, it's like we need even more. And he gives us the third sign. We're going to jump ahead because I want to do these three signs together. And the third sign we see is a sign of how Jesus is willing to suffer long for us to grasp these signs. A sign of how Jesus is willing to suffer long for us to grasp these signs. And they came to Bethsaida. We're going to try this one more time. Can we bring up the map? Oh. Okay, so he's down in the Decapolis, and Bethsaida, he actually comes back up. It's on the edge, the southern edge of the Sea of Galilee, right around there. Okay. And so people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. Uh, again, he doesn't want this man to be a spectacle. He treats him with dignity and respect. And when, he had put, uh, and when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? Now look at how this unfolds in verse 24. And he looked up and said, I see people, but they're like trees walking. What in the world does that mean? Verse 25, then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. Now, anybody who's read this is like, what the heck is going on here? Right? It's almost like Jesus, I don't know, he like encounters this blind man, and he's like, Shazam, you're healed. And the guy's like, uh, sort of. Um, I'm seeing like kind of okay. I'm seeing people like trees. Is that right? And Jesus is like, oh no. Okay, shazam. And then all of a sudden he's like, okay, I'm all better. Okay, Jesus, okay. I cranked it up to the right level and now you're okay. Um, here's the thing about this though, is like we've already seen that Jesus is God. We've already seen that like through a gentle word, he actually raised a little girl from death to life. So like, this isn't a power issue. This is very purposeful uh, on behalf of Jesus. Like wh- why is it that he's doing this? Now, the answer to that question is found in the context of this passage. And when you see like, what it's bookended, in, or bookended with, what's interesting is right before uh, this miracle story, we'll look at this next week, and right after it, which we'll look at the week after, are the disciples being unable to see Jesus for who he really is. It's like they kind of get close to him, and they have like, really fuzzy sight, and they're like, I can't really see you for who you really are. And Jesus, rather than sort of casting them aside, continues to long suffer alongside them so they had a clear vision of who he really is. One commentator, his name is James Edwards, he says this. He says, very important is the symbolism of the two-stage healing. The disciples, like the blind man, have been touched by Jesus and received a preliminary blessing. Their spiritual insight, however, was far from complete. It was not much better than that of the Pharisees. They needed a second touch for complete understanding. And what you're seeing emerge in this sign, it's an earthly sign of a heavenly reality that Jesus is the one who is willing to look at our struggles with belief, our misunderstandings, our shortcomings, and he's willing not to like sort of cast us aside because we're not perfect, but in spite of our imperfections, long suffering along, long suffer alongside of us to create us into who we were meant to be and to finally cure us of our spiritual blindness. I feel like this tangibly becomes good news and not just kind of like an interesting idea of what Mark is doing here, is when I think about how many of you in this room are enslaved to a mentality of perfectionism. Like many of us in this room, we grew up in homes where if you did not perform, you were severely punished for it. It didn't matter if you got like all A's and one B, the conversation was going to be like, why did you get a B in geometry? It's like, because geometry is hard. Like, that's why I majored in history. Geometry is really hard, right? So anyways, that's, I'm not talking about my own life. Um, I wasn't actually that good of a student, so that was not my situation. Or, you know, some of you, some of you, like, gosh, you played on sports teams that were so, like, they were just coached by maniacs. Like, these guys that if you made, like, one single error, you're going to be thrown on the bench. 
you're going to be kicked off the team. You're going to be made an example of. Many of you, you work jobs now where you're sort of fearful of, like, if you make a mistake, like, am I going to be fired? Am I going to be replaced? Like, the job market is such that I could be replaced by some, like, 19-year-old intern who's willing to be paid below minimum wage, and they're going to replace me because I made a mistake? Even for a lot of you in this room, like, you're like, oh, no, that's not me. Like, I'm pretty easygoing. I'm not particularly driven or perfectionistic in my tendencies. You know what I would point you to look at where we're all sort of perfectionists? It's the way we portray ourselves on social media. Um, And I would say, like, not particularly Twitter and not even particularly Facebook, but for any of you who are on Instagram. Now, here's the thing. is for some of you, like, some of you might just take a first photo of yourself and just post it and you don't even look at it. Um, I don't know if that's any of you in this room. But probably for the majority of you, you're more like, okay, I'm going to take 57 pictures, all of them looking somewhat casual. Oh, wait a second, like, that eyelash is doing like a weird thing. It's kind of a little bit off. So let's retake this picture. Absolutely, again, okay, I've taken 57. All right, everything looks exactly the way that I wanted to look at. Okay, now we're going to filter it, right? So we're going to spend an extensive period of time making sure, like, okay, I know I'm not particularly tan, uh, but I'm going to look particularly tan in this scene. And then you post it, all because there's sort of this internal pressure to project this image of yourself that is perfect so that people will love you and accept you and I mean, we just call it likes, right? Like, val- validate me. Like, tell me I'm beautiful. Tell me that I matter. Tell me what I said was witty. That grind of perfectionism, oh my gosh, like, it will crush you. It is a weight that is too hard for any back to carry. And thank God that Jesus Christ doesn't treat us that way. He's not like the overly demanding psychopathic parent or coach who's like, well, you messed up. You're out of here. No, he is a gracious, not just Lord, but Savior that will long suffer alongside us in the midst of our struggles, in the midst of our disbelief, in the midst of us drifting away, in the midst of us thinking we're too smart for this whole faith thing, in the midst of us dating bad people who lead us astray. He long suffers alongside us again and again and again, even to the point that it will cost him his own life, and he will go to the cross, and he will die in our place, and it serves as like the most tangible Polaroid picture of the degree to which he will suffer because he loves us, just so that we will see the signs for what they really are in the immense city of the good news of who he is. And what's given rise in the midst of all of this then is this huge picture of who Jesus is. It's meant to like change everything for us. It's meant to be like just like a boulder gets thrown into a river and the waves go everywhere. So the, the presence of, that's been revealed about who Jesus is in this passage is meant to like burst into our hearts and trickle into every aspect of our lives. But here's the challenge. is like, that's not the way most of us think about Jesus. Like, if we're just honest, he's kind of this like moral pseudo-historical, sort of on par with maybe a superhero in terms of relevance for my life type of figure, if we're just honest. I'll just give you an example of where I saw this. Um, I love being in this building, because this building gives real opportunities for crazy things that happen that I can then tell from stage. But um, I remember like three years ago or so, um, we weren't on this side yet. Uh, We were just on that side, and our church was much smaller. And on this side was an installation company, and we were on that side. So everything happened on that side. The the setup was the same, so the stage was kind of on this end. And we would, a lot of times, when the weather was really nice, we would keep the bay door open uh, because it was just 
you know, it was just, it was just nice. So uh, I'm here, and, you know, when the bay door is open, it's like about right there, when you think about this, when you go into the other side when we're done here. I could look out and look onto Larimer Street, and I could see people kind of coming and going down Larimer Street. Now, here's what was really interesting about this, is this one particular Sunday was the Sunday before Halloween, and I could see people coming and going, but not just coming and going, uh, but coming and going in their Halloween costumes as well. So I'm here, and I'm preaching, and I'm trying to keep my stream of consciousness as I'm talking, but then all of a sudden, it's like, there goes Superman. And then it's like, there goes Benjamin Franklin. Like, that's an odd choice, but okay, Benjamin Franklin, like, I appreciate that as a history nerd. And then all of a sudden, there comes Jesus Christ, I'm not joking, like, there comes this guy dressed as Jesus, and he's got, like, the robe, and he's got the beard, and he's got the sandals, and he's got, like, the sash thing around, and he's walking, and I'm like, oh, my gosh, like, there's a dude dressed as Jesus, and, like, I'm preaching, so the words are coming out of my mouth the entire time, that's what I'm thinking, I'm trying to, like, not get totally thrown off by this, and I see this guy walking down, and all of a sudden, I think, you know, like, you know that feeling when you know somebody's staring at you and you kind of feel at it? I think this guy felt that. And all of a sudden, he looks up, and I'm staring at him, and I'm talking, okay? So he looks at me, and then he looks up at the giant neon sign that says the Summit Church, and then he looks at me, and we have this really awkward sort of interaction with one another, where all of a sudden, he's like, oh my gosh, like, what exactly is going on here? So I'm talking, I'm preaching to you guys, I'm looking at this dude who's walking down Larimer Street, he's probably going to go get smashed at a bar right down there, and we're talking about him, he's dressed as Jesus, and all of a sudden, after about 10 seconds of awkward staring into one of his eyes, he like waves at me like this and then just keeps going down Larimer and I'm like, there goes Jesus to get drunk in downtown. <laughs> Man, it, I was like reflecting on some of this this past week and I feel like what, what, I feel like the reason like that startled me so much is like that's such a great glimpse into the way our culture sort of imposes like what you should believe about Jesus. He, he's like a, 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 a superhero. He's like a pseudo-historical figure. He's like a guy you put the costume on of and dress up as for Halloween. And the only problem with that is like that really small vision of Jesus, like that will not save you. It will not save you for eternity. It will not save you from the trials that you're enduring this week. And so we need this. <laughs> like we need the signs to function like road markers to carry us to this destination to say, this is who Jesus is. Like, he is the one who made all of us and in his image and consequently have dignity, value, and worth. And he is wor- we are worth him pursuing. Not because of who we are, because of who he is. But he is the one who so identifies with our suffering that when he sees it face to face, he's not that, that, that socially unaware friend who's like, oh, it's not that big of a deal, but no, he grieves alongside those who are grieving. He is the one who doesn't just grieve, but he is the God who puts the world back in the way that it was meant to be. And he is the one who so desires for you to see that and to believe that and to respond to that and to live in the wake of that truth that he will even go to the cross to long suffer alongside of us until we taste and see that good news for our lives. And so in light of who Jesus actually is, not some guy to dress up for as Halloween, but this God and this Savior and this Lord, in light of who he is, what are you going to do? Like, what are you going to do? Like, will you believe in him? 
maybe for the first time in your life, and for a real vision of who he is for your real life? Like, will you follow him in the areas of your life where it's really hard for you to follow? Will you believe him in the areas of your life where you've been overeducated to the point to say, oh no, like what Jesus talks about, that's not really true for us today. Will you get baptized, even though it's like a really scary thing for you to go on stage and to get baptized and get soaked in front of everybody else? Will you join a church, even though that doesn't fit into like maybe your expectation of what brought you here to Denver? Like you came here, because you could be a non-committal skier and Broncos watcher, and instead, like, you're going to be a belonger to the family of God. Will you give yourself away to the mission of Jesus because that's the one thing you're meant to architect your entire life around? In light of who he is, what are you going to do? And will you respond appropriately? Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for who you are. And we thank you that you give us this incredibly clear vision for your goodness and your power. I pray that we would see you for who you really are. And I pray in particular for the men in this room, men and women in this room, that you would cure us, that you would heal us of our blindness that we all possess. Let us see you for who you really are in the wake of who you are. Let us architect our entire lives around that good news and let us respond appropriately even now. And we just ask these things in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.